encourage you to find a Bible if you've not brought one and to turn there with me uh, to, to 1 John, this little letter toward the end of the New Testament. We return tonight to our study of, of this letter that the Apostle John has written that is to be circulated among the churches that he uh, helped to shepherd. We're going to come tonight to verse 11, and we will read down through the end of chapter 3. So it'll be verses 11 through 24. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of gathering for worship. We know that it is only possible because of Christ our Lord. And so we come in his name and we come by the power of your spirit now to your word. And uh, God, it's a privilege that we have that we can hold this in our hands and we can take it home with us and read it at any point and God, it's a privilege that we're able to freely read and study it together tonight, that, that I am able to stand and proclaim truth from it tonight. And so, God, we thank you for that privilege, and we declare that we need it desperately. We need your word. And, God, we need you to open our eyes to it, that you would remove the, 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 the clouds that sin causes in our hearts, that prevents us or keeps us from understanding what we find here. And God, that you would dispel that darkness and shine a bright light in our hearts, that we would be able to clearly see the wonderful truths of your word and then apply them to our hearts. So God, speak to us now from it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. First John chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, the apostle says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what, he, do what pleases him. And this is the commandment. We believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is a wonderfully straightforward passage. And I'm thankful for that tonight. Um, John has been arguing uh, in in circles, not negatively. That's not a, that's not a, um, That's not a derogatory comment about the apostle's arguments. It's the nature of his letter and of this writing. And it is that he's 
arguing in circles, and those circles seem to tighten a bit sometimes and then kind of broaden the focus. But here he has been giving us these tests of Christianity. And in these verses, after the beginning of three and the very end of two that we saw last time, where he takes and focuses attention on further explanation and application of the moral test, that is the test of obedience, that if we say we love God, we'll do what he says. He now turns to do the exact same thing for the social test or the test of loving our brothers, the test of fellowship, that we would love those that are our brothers, that, that, that we would have a life characterized of this kind of love, the kind of love that Christ has modeled and showed us. He's already made this argument. If you, if you go back, and you don't have to turn there, but back in chapter 2, verses 7 and following, he made it very clearly where he argues that anyone who claims to love God but does not love his brother continues to walk in darkness and does not know where he is going or is stumbling. Um, he says in verse 10, Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So he's made the correlation then in the argument simply between existing in darkness, that is, apart from Christ who is the light and God who is the light, existing in darkness being uh, correlated to having a lack of love for one's brother. And so in verses 11 and following to the end of this chapter, he is going to seek to bring further exhortation to the teaching, further explanation to the teaching, and then further application. So he's just focusing in a bit tighter on this issue and on this test and helping us to understand maybe the fullness of it or to see it in a way that perhaps in chapter 2, verses 7 and following, that we did not understand it. And I want to break the text out very simply in a twofold structure. Uh, I think it's the way that he gives it here. This is a, this is a passage that is all about comparison, some comparisons are being made, some prototypes are being acknowledged, uh, some things are, are being compared as like one another and evident of one another. And so I want us to consider then, first of all, the evidence and consequence of hate, and then consider very simply the evidence and the consequence of love, right? And we'll see why that makes any difference, why that matters to us as we move through here. But let's begin, as he does, with the evidence and the consequence of hate. He says in verse 11, he's made allusion to this fact that they must believe and continue to believe the message that he has declared to them from the beginning, the message they've heard from the beginning of their faith in Christ. And he said, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. What is that? That We should love one another. And then there's all this business, as we just read, uh, about the significance of loving our brother. If you go down, um, verse 23, the culmination here, and this is his commandment, right? The same one that has been from the beginning. What is it? This is very similar to the language of Jesus in the, uh, in, in the accounts of his life in the gospels, right? We, we saw this in Matthew chapter six. When we studied through the Sermon on the Mount. We found it elsewhere. We've looked at those references where Jesus declares the two greatest commandments and upon those all of the law and the prophets hang or hinge. And he recounts that here, verse 23. This is his commandment. First, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. We love Jesus. And secondly, then that we love one another just as he's commanded us. 
Right? So he's returning to that theme. And he says that here in verse 11. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. that We should love one another. But then he moves immediately to show us the opposite of that. He moves immediately to bring some explanation further and some application to what it means not to love one another. And he begins to use, he begins by using an example. And he equates hatred with Cain. Now we'll see in just a moment he's going to equate love with Jesus. And then we're going to see that Cain is prototypical, if you will, of the world. He's like a, uh, he, he's, he's an example of what, what was going to be. And Jesus then um, is sort of prototypical of this love. And it is to be a character or a character trait of his people. We'll kind of see these comparisons as we go. But he, he deals with hatred and Cain and that they are representative here of the world. Look at what he says beginning in verse 12. We should not then be like Cain. We should not be like Cain. Then he tells us a little bit about him. Who was of the evil one? How was he of the evil one? What's the evidence of that? He murdered his brother. Then he explains the murder a bit, and we'll talk about that. But then he goes down and he says in verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is indeed a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The first question that I want us to think about as we consider the evidence and consequences of hatred is that is it really fair to go from loving one's brother or lack thereof to an example of a murderer, right? Do you, do you, do you feel the question? That's a big step. Like he, that's from zero to 60 in like half a second. Floor, you know, pedal to the floor. He's arguing that you have to love your brother. And if you don't love your brother, then you can't really claim to love Jesus. But he goes from that argument to, and let me give you an example of that. Remember when Cain murdered Abel. And so I think it does beg the question for us, is hating our brother, at least in this context, an unwillingness to love him, really equatable to murder? I think verse 15 says that it is. Everyone that hates his brother is a murderer. This is the text that Chase preached from the Sermon on the Mount. The same thing that Jesus says, right? We know the law and that it says not to hate our, not to murder. But anyone who has hatred in his heart for his brother has broken the law, is a murderer. That, that, that's the same thing that's going on here. There are a couple of significant points then that we need to draw out of what it means that our lack of love for our brother is, in effect, a commitment of murder. It's even stronger than it seems in English, because the word for murder is literally like to slaughter, like to brutally kill, not, not, not accidental or anything like that. There's, there's, there's an extreme severity to the language here. And that's what he says, that Cain was a murderer like this. And as he characterizes that, we know why it was such a vile thing that he did. Why did he murder him? He says in verse 12, not because of some unrighteousness or something that Abel had done, but he says, because his own deeds were evil as the outflow of an evil heart, And his brother's righteous. So on the one hand, notice first that Cain did not deserve, I mean that Abel, excuse me, did not deserve it. So that it was purely born out of the sin and the lust of Cain's flesh. That's number one. 
But to take it a step further, the question of, well, what was it that drew this lust out? What was it that he lusted after? What is it that in his own sin and his own wickedness he was so angry about? I mean, had Abel wronged him? Had Abel talked about him? Had a Look, as you know in the story, and as it's made perfectly clear here, it was because his brother was accepted by God as righteous. We don't know everything about exactly why God accepted the one offering and not the other. I think there's some pretty good answers to that. But the end of the story is that he did. And that Cain is declared to be a wicked and unrighteous man. And it is on the basis of that wickedness that God rejects him. And so Cain looks at Abel, who is so far from doing anything wrong, he is simply leading a life of righteousness and obedience to God that pleases him. And so he makes an offering to God that God accepts. And the result of that is that his brother is so jealous of his righteousness and his acceptance before God, that he kills him. And that is the thing that the Apostle John here equates to not loving our brother like God calls us to. That's pretty significant. That's serious. Right? So, so you may think it's not that big of a deal. You know, you're Someone says, oh, you were slandering them or you were talking about them behind their back. But he says to not have a, a sincere, obedient love for the brother is to be a murderer like Cain of the vilest and the most wicked order. And I just want that to sink in for just a minute. I don't have to say it any more eloquently or plainly than the text says it. Verse 15, so that he says, everyone that hates his brother is a murderer. And you say, well, do I? I don't really hate my brother. If you go a bit further, even here in this text, not a, let alone the other places in Scripture that we have already examined in our study of 1 John, what does he say? That if you have the world's goods and you see your brother in need and you fail to give him to him, that's, a, that, that's an exhibition in your life of this type of hatred. And you're a murderer. The question then is, fundamentally, what is it? What is the essence of this hatred? What is the essence of this hatred? Well, I think it is just that, particularly jealousy. The jealousy that led Cain to do what he did. And namely, or specifically, the jealousy for another's righteousness. Man, what a a vile, uh, what a terrible sin to, to struggle with. And guys, We have to understand that his point is that to show or to do acts of hatred against our brothers, or to put it another way, to fail to love them in some way is very likely because of our jealousy of them, because of who they are, because of how they are liked because of the righteous life that they lead, because they're not struggling in ways that I am, because they seem to be more faithful than I am. Guys, as I studied this text this week and I reflected on that reality, man, it terrified me to look back on my life and think about those times when I've struggled with bitterness and hatred towards my brother, how it has not been because they've done anything wrong. It's because I'm jealous of those people. 
We have, to, we have to face that honestly because that is the way that this hatred is being characterized here. That in its essence, it is the product of jealousy that flows from the sinful heart. Jealousy of one's brother in Cain's life that ultimately led to him killing his brother. Now, when we ask the question, is it really murder? And if he says here that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him, does that mean that if you're a murderer, either in the sense of hating your brother or actually committing the sin of murder by killing someone, that you cannot be saved? Some people see that as like the mortal sin. The answer is certainly not. I mean, Jesus prayed for the people that were killing him on the cross that their sins would be forgiven. And so here I think John Stott had a pretty helpful quote. He said, rather, he is stating a general principle that to take life is to forfeit life and that no murderer has eternal life in him as a present and permanent possession. He's just making the truth of that, okay? But then listen to what he says. He says, if this is so, and John accepts it as axiomatic, that is that one leads to the other, then clearly anyone who hates his brother does not possess eternal life either because to hate is to be a murderer, right? Did you get that? And that's what I'm arguing here. Now, that does not mean that we cannot be forgiven of that sin, but it means that if the trajectory of our life is one that is jealousy of our brothers and our friends and those that we encounter that leads us to hatred of them, then we are not living a life that is characterized by Christianity, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it prove? If in its essence is jealousy, where do we end up? What does it prove about us if this is present? Well, by virtue of the language here, notice that he says, Cain, who is likened unto these murderers that hate their brother, is of the evil one and so murdered his brother. Those who are then murderers by hatred of their brother, they do not have eternal life abiding in him. Friends, this is very important. If we live a life characterized by this kind of hatred or lack of love for our brothers, then John's point is it is evidence that we are apart from God in Christ. That we're lost. That we are in the darkness and the product is not life eternal, but death. So, so what does it prove? It proves that we are not his and that he is not ours. Because the power of his spirit is not at work in us to put to, deed, to put to death the deeds of our flesh. And we are serving ourselves and the jealousy of our hearts and seeking vengeance and to make things right, at least as we see them on our own. And rather than serving our father, God, we are given to serve our father, the devil. If you go to John, John's gospel, verse chapter 8 you see this very same reality in uh, John's testimony. Jesus is uh, rebuking those that seek to kill him, seek to take his life. And look what he says down in verse 44. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. For he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. It's very reminiscent of John's language here in this letter, isn't it? 
Why is it axiomatic that murderers will not inherit eternal life in the kingdom of God? Because by definition, murderers are those that are doing the will of the first murderer, their father, the devil, who has been a murderer in the words of Jesus from the very beginning. So it proves that we live apart from him. Now, one other very interesting thing before we come to look at the evidences and the consequences of love. It's very interesting here what he says in verse 13. If he equates Cain with this hatred as an example or a representative of that, notice then that he sees Cain in the same light of the world or those that are apart from Christ. Notice that John has made, he has labored to make these distinctions between light and dark, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world, those who are in Christ and those who are of the world. This this delineation that's been made. Well, he's using that same language here. And look at what he says in verse 13. Do not then be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you, right? So this hatred of our brothers and friends and acquaintances and the people that are in our lives, it is to be expected from the world because it is the, it is the actions of, that flow from the heart of those that follow the evil one and serve the devil. So they're apart from Christ, they're out in the world. But I think the tension that he's getting at here is for those who claim to love Christ, if this is true, like if this is a true spiritual axiom that the apostle is giving us, then what does that say about the state of the heart of the so-called professing Christian who does not love his brother? Right? It's to be expected of the world. Brothers, do not be surprised when the world hates you. They hated Jesus, they hated the apostles, and they will hate his children until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. But his whole point is that this is not to be the case, and it should be absolutely surprising and troubling if it is the characterization of the heart and the actions of the lives of people that profess to love Jesus. And so I would just simply ask you, do you think that you are known and do you think that you live a life of love for others? That I love the Lord the, my God with all my heart, soul, and might first. This is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus says. But the second is likened to it. That I love my neighbor as myself. Friends, if we're truly in Christ, that will be the testimony and the evidence of our life. For without it, we are jealous and in the service of the evil one, proving that we continue in the darkness and will end in death. Now, what is the evidence and consequence of love? So he turns the page to make a contrast between Cain and between someone else. And he begins that in verse 16. Look at what he says. By this, that we, by this we know love. So he says, listen, you have a framework for understanding what love looks like. So I want to make an axiom, he says here. That he laid down his life for us. Who's he talking about? Jesus. Okay. So that he's, he is advocating or explaining here that as Cain is the ultimate example, at least in this argument, of what it means to hate one's brother, then Jesus is the example of what it means to love one's brother. We're told in the New Testament in John 15, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend, for another the greatest expression of love. And he says, this is how we know love because Jesus laid down his life for us. So that becomes the prototype of love or the example that we are to 
seek to follow. And he says there, and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Now, it's very interesting. He equates not not loving our brother with killing him. He equates loving our brother with killing ourselves. So follow that. You either hate your brother and serve yourself to his detriment, or you love your brother and set yourself aside, maybe to your own detriment, in order that he might be prospered, in order that he might be served. It is in its essence, so if we ask the same questions, what is the love the apostle is advocating? In its essence, it is the love of self-sacrifice. The ultimate example of that is Jesus Christ. It's an allusion to what he did for sinners on the cross. He says here, if you love your brother, then you would be willing to lose your own life in order that he might live. That you would be willing to lose your own life in self-sacrifice in order that, uh, in order that he might live and be prospered and be served. Notice a couple of things here that in its essence, so the essence of it is self-sacrifice, but a couple of other things here. Notice, first of all, that he makes abundantly clear that this cannot be fully realized by stating our love for someone. You can tell someone that you love them, and you can mean that with all of your heart. But until that love works itself up in sacrificial living, it means very little. I'm not going to say that it means nothing, but it means very little because it must be substantiated, the claims that we make to love, they must be substantiated with living a life that says we love you, right? And we see that here as we move down. What does he say? Little children, verse 18, let us not love in word or talk. He's not saying we should not tell people we love them. He is saying that cannot be the end of the expression of our love. For it means very little. But in word or deed and truth. The truth there being um, the the reality of it. So let us not only talk about our love. let Let us not love in word or in talk. But in deed, that is actions and in truth. So first we see that it's more than simply declaring our love for someone, you know, Romeo and Juliet sort of love. I mean, it's, it's more than just standing at an altar, right? The love between husband and a wife. If, listen, how many husbands and wives stand at altars and profess their love one to another until death do they part? And it means very little because ultimately, maybe not even so long after they say that, they go their, they go their separate ways. Their marriages dissolved. Like the tragedy of divorce, it's an expression, uh, it's an expression in our lives of, of what he's arguing for here, that our love must be substantiated by a willingness to die for the other. If Jesus is the example, then that must be the meaning. Secondly, Uh, we understand that the ultimate doing of this love is in this form of self-sacrifice, that there is no greater love than this. And so that it becomes an action. It it, it becomes a willingness to say, well, you know, I may have wanted this, or this may cost me this money, or this may cost me this amount of time. This, This may cause me to not do the things that I wanted to do today, or this may mess my schedule up. But I love this person. And I'm willing to set those desires of my own heart aside in order to serve them in this way. 
Friends, I have to tell you, man, what a different church we would have. And I'm, I'm not making accusations, but what a different church we would have if we all loved each other like that. That you were willing to die for the person on the pew in front of you or behind you or beside you or across the aisle. If you're a right-sider or a left-sider. You know, you, you would die for those left-siders even though they don't know which side to sit on. And, and no, God, for most of us, Love is never going to come to that. God's not going to call us to some incredible act of heroism where we're expected to give our all and our life for our brother. That that will probably be the rare exception. That's not going to be the testimony of most of our lives. It's, It's a metaphor. It's a willingness to set ourselves aside. To set our budget aside sometimes to set our schedules and our time aside to give of time that we don't think that we have in order to serve our brother and our sister. To get up on a Saturday morning when you'd rather be sleeping or when you need to do your own yard. You know, and go serve a brother or a sister by performing actions for them that they cannot perform for themselves. Like just those small things. But the tendency of the human heart, guys, is not to do that. Like we love ourselves, right? That's why Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. Because we always serve ourselves. Our needs and desires rarely go unmet. So let me, let me put it to you like this. You say you love your brothers. Even here in this congregation, this church family, where you spend a significant amount of time and have a certain degree of commitment, are you as interested in the desires of your neighbor's heart as you are of your own? Are you as interested in your neighbor's needs being met as you are of your own? That's the call of self-sacrifice here. So in its essence, it is ultimately the doing that Christ exhibited in sacrificing himself for others. And that becomes then the call of Christian love. That if we love our brothers, we will not kill them, but we will be willing to die for them. Now, what does this prove? Same question that we asked before. What does this mean? Well, he says in 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for others. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Why? By this we shall know that we are of the truth. Now go down to the very end, that same idea. Who is it that keeps his commandments? Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. That is the command to love our brothers. That those who keep them abide in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Two things. Number one, he says plainly that if we exhibit self-sacrificial love for our brothers, then we know that God abides in us and that we are abiding in him. You say, well, why? It's not that loving my brother earns God's favor or positions me better before God, right? I'm given a place of abiding because I have a love for my brother. That would never be helpful for his argument. In fact, it wouldn't wouldn't do anything. What he's saying is, you know you abide in him and he abides in you because the capacity to love your brother like this does not rest in you by your nature of sin. It only comes 
from the resting of Christ upon us and the desires of being regenerated or made new in Christ when we're given a new heart and new desires and a new will. So that look at what he says. Because the spirit that he has given us does these things. What he's saying is that if you look at your life and you see evidence of the Spirit of God working to do the things that only He can do by His power, then it is a great encouragement to your heart to know that you are His and to know that He is yours. The issue of abiding, that God is in you and you are in God, at least to some degree. Now, why does this matter? And then we're going to be done. It matters a great deal. It matters a great deal because you know how often you do not love. It matters to me because when I read the Bible and when I come to worship and when I'm served by other Christians and when I read about the love of Christ for me and the ultimate sacrifice that was made, I am filled with guilt because of how often I serve myself and how often I am unwilling to set my desires and my time and myself aside in order to meet the needs of my brothers. But friends, he deals with that in this text. So yeah, it helps us to know that we're in him. It's a test of Christianity and that's how it works. Because in our nature, we cannot do this. So if we're able to do this, then it helps to encourage your hearts. Hey, but listen, the spirit of God is at work in you. And that's only possible if Christ is upon you and God is in you and you abide in him. Notice verse 19. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth. So that's good. But look also. And reassure our heart before him. Let's go back to last week. I want to tie, I want to, I want to tie together for you. Go back to the opening verses that became the structure of our sermon for last Sunday night, if you were here. Chapter 2, verse 28, here's what he says. And now, little children, abide in him two things, so that when he appears, that is, at his next coming in judgment, we may have confidence... And not shrink from him in shame. Well, when I know the guilt of my own heart and when my heart condemns me. And I'm confronted with the reality of my own sin. Friends, the power of the Spirit at work in my life, even if imperfectly because I am a sinner. It helps me to know that I am abiding in him because he is abiding in me. And when he comes, it will give me confidence to stand. I will not have to be ashamed. Why? Because the knowledge that I am in Christ is the knowledge that I am no longer guilty. That there is therefore now no condemnation. I'm guilty, but it has been paid for. Right? God's wrath has actually been poured out and the punishment against my guilt has actually come. So I've been set free. Free from guilt and the judgment upon it. So if I know that I am no longer condemned under the wrath of God because Christ is in me and because I am in him, then I might have confidence and not stand condemned even if by my own heart. That's what he says. Look, verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, notice back up in 13, we may be reassured. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Notice 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. I don't, 
I don't think he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth here. I think his point is that if we have knowledge of our abiding in God and him in us, then we are no longer condemned by our hearts and we may reassure the condemning heart so that we end in confidence. Does that make make sense? He says, love your brother. Love your brother as yourself. Love your brothers like Christ love you or hate them and seek their death. John Calvin, and I'm, I'm summarizing, but he made that point abundantly clear. He said, to fail to love your brother is to seek to see him perish. Man, because he understood the truth of these verses. I'm going to close with a quote, and then we're going to pray and be done. John Stott again. He said this, listen. He said, it may be helpful to summarize the teaching of this passage about hatred and love. I love summaries. Hatred characterizes the world whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. Love characterizes the church whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God. It issues in self-sacrifice and is evidence then of eternal life. Friends, may we know that we are in him because we keep his commandments and we set ourselves aside for the good of our brother. And may we stand before him with confidence, knowing that because we are in Christ, eternal life with God is ours. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the testimony of your word as it's come to us tonight. God, but we frankly acknowledge the difficulty of obedience and faithfulness to what it has called us to to love our brother the way that we love ourselves. But God, I pray that that would be a character trait, a characterization of this church, that we would love one another the way that you've loved us in Christ. But even beyond these walls, that we would love every person that you help us to encounter and you allow us to come to know or to speak with, that we would have time for them, that we would have patience with them, that we would show grace and kindness toward them. God, that we would be willing to set aside our thoughts and our plans and our finances and our budgets and our time and our schedules in order to serve others. God, may everyone know that we're yours because we love one another. God, and then when they see the way that we love, may they be um, broken by the love of Christ who made the ultimate sacrifice, the innocent for the guilty, giving his life that we would live. And may they trust and believe in him. God, use us and our love one for another by the power of your spirit working to that end to preach the gospel to sinners that desperately need to hear it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.